Let me see you put them up. Reach the sky, touch the stars up above, cause it's one time for the underdog. I'm Patrick Bedevi, host of ITM, and in today's podcast, we're going to be talking to Robert Greene, the author of 48 Laws of Power, except today we're talking about his recent book that just came out, Laws of Human Nature. Robert, thank you so much for joining Thanks us for here today. Me, Patrick. It's good to have you back. It, yeah. It's good to have you back. So, Laws of Human Nature. You know, I read your book, and one of the things I like about the way you, you started the book is the fact that, you know, we all think when we read a book like yours... As you're going through it, you're reading and you're saying, yeah, that other person's like this. Oh no, this other person's like that. He's talking about her. He's talking about him. He's talking about them. These evil people out there. And then all of a sudden, bam, you hit me in the face and you say, I'm talking about you. Right. <laughs> so you're sitting there saying, oh my gosh, like you, we think we are so much more polished, superior and smarter and intelligent than we really are. And then you challenge that perspective and you completely give a spin to it. So what inspired you to want to write a book, The Laws of Human Nature? Well, you know, each of my books kind of comes at a historical moment. So the 48 Laws of Power was at a moment where I think people were being really hypocritical about power. Uh, There were a lot of self-help books out there that were so soft and gentle. Like everything is sort of Pollyannish about power and you just need to be positive and have an open attitude and be nice to people and you'll get ahead. And it really pissed me off because my experiences in Hollywood and elsewhere and in, in, in all the different jobs I've had is that's not what the world is like. So I felt angry. And when I'm angry, I write a book. Mm. And so mastery, I was really angry because I thought people don't know how to make things anymore. They're so techno-obsessed. They're so into their algorithms. They're so, um, think that they can get anything easily or quickly, and we're going to find ourselves in a world where bridges are going to fall apart. People don't know how to design things or make things or write a book anymore. And I was really worried about it, so I wrote, I was angry, so I wrote Mastery. So the laws of human nature, I think we've lost a sense of psychology, of what really motivates people. I think people, we're living in times where people have never been more self-obsessed, more self-absorbed for whatever reasons. And Social media lucky. maybe a little bit? Social media plays okay. a huge role in that. And so people are kind of locked into their own little world. You may not realize this, but I think that the source of most of the pain that people feel in their life, the source of most of their failures in life, why they hit a wall, why they can't get any further in life, is because they don't understand people. They don't understand mm. what motivates. They can't get inside the mind of the other person. They're always thinking of themselves. And because of that, um, they don't have the ability to persuade or influence people to get them to move in the direction they want. Their relationships with people are very thin and brittle. There's no real deep empathic connection. Specifically to today's times is what you're saying. Yes. Got it. It's getting worse and worse out there. But also a lack of self-awareness. As you were pointing out in the beginning, everyone thinks it's the other Mm -hmm. person that's narcissistic or aggressive, mm-hmm. or is envious, mm-hmm. or has a dark side, or is repressed, or is short-sighted, not me, no. So um, a lack of a self-awareness and a lack of what really motivates people. And I, and I encounter it all the time. I do a lot of consulting with very high-powered people um, in business and politics. 
all over the world. You would go all over the world. to the Middle East for a month because somebody was hiring you to uh, um, yeah. help them out with decisions they were making. Yeah. And I was always shocked at how they could be so smart about some things, but be absolutely ignorant about people. Like they hired somebody who ended up being the partner who stole the company, as if a person like that doesn't leave traces behind them in their past that mm. they were going to do that. Um, you know, on and on and on. I could give you a hundred different stories of the same thing. So I'm always shocked at how people don't have a sense of the psychology of the people they're dealing with. They don't know how to judge people's character. They're basing their opinions of people on their appearance, whether someone's charming or good-looking or articulate, and they're not looking behind the, behind the surface, behind the mask. So that anger uh, kind of fueled this book and was sort of one of the main reasons I wrote it. I, I'm hoping you get angry every three years. That's what I'm hoping. So <laughs> hopefully three years when you get angry again, you keep writing books for the next 30 years. Okay. But uh, you know, it's interesting you say that. I read a book one time by a British diplomat called Leaderless Revolution. And he said some of the biggest revolutions nowadays are starting without a leader because it's becoming a completely different era we're living in. And revolutions are driven by three different things. Something that bothers you, something you love, something that you hate and you're angry about. Yeah. And typically the biggest ones are obviously number three, hate and anger because you want to do something about it. Let me get into a few pages I've marked off. Okay, and I don't know how many of them we'll get into with this interview, but we'll try to get into some of them. So you say here on page 100, this is the section where you're talking about see-through people's masks, right? And uh, you say, realize the following. The word personality comes from the Latin persona, which means mask, which means we're all wearing a mask, right? In the public, we all wear masks, and this has a positive function. If we displayed exactly who we are and spoke our minds truthfully, we would offend almost everyone and reveal qualities that are best concealed. So does this mean that we're all living a life of, you know, lies? Or does it mean that some of us actually, uh, uh, those who are willing to surround yourself with people who are willing to tell you the truth and your sensitivity doesn't get into it, to find your blind spots, you're able to advance. What does it mean to you when you write something like this? Well, I'm basically challenging uh, this idea, this notion that people have that acting in life, in being social, and in wearing that mask is a bad thing, as if we need to be more authentic and be just who we are. And I think that's completely bogus. I think humans are actors. From the age of two years old, three years old, we learned how to manipulate our parents by crying when we needed to cry, being charming, saying certain things. We learn how to act. And when we grow up, I have uh, earlier in that chapter, I make the point if, if you met a person that said exactly what he felt every time, you know, you would hate that person. He would never get, a, he would never have any friends. So let's be honest about this. We're all acting. When we're in the office, we're not telling our boss exactly what we think about his stupid ideas or what he's wearing or his clothes or et cetera. We say what we think is appropriate for that situation. We are courtiers. And I want to bring some honesty into that and say, stop fighting that need to be an actor. In fact, what you want to be is you want to be a better actor. You want to be good at this. Um, oh, so you, you are not saying be truthful. You're saying learn to act better. 
Because there's some contradictions to that within the book as well, though, right? Yeah. Well, it depends on the situation in which you're being truthful. You need to be truthful about yourself. You need to be honest about who you are. You need to be honest that you have a dark side, that you have aggressive impulses, that you can feel envious. So you need to be truthful about yourself. But being a social animal, which is what we are, means that you have to um, mold what you say and how you act to the situation that you're in. You can't just simply blurt out what you, what you feel. That's, not, that's being an animal. That's not being a human being. A human being controls his emotions, has the ability to control what he or she says. I see a thousand times in business situations, the number one sin that people make mistakes in, in negotiations or in meeting, is they talk too much. They say things that they shouldn't have said. They reveal things about themselves that they shouldn't. You need to have more self-control. You need to be better at wearing that mask. And you need to enjoy the sense of being a good actor and playing a role. Some of the best people who are the most successful are really good at playing a role, are really good at this sort of mm. acting aspect. Does this, does this kind of go to later on in the book when you talk about how Hubert Humphrey's story with Lyndon Johnson, yeah. how he meets you know, Russell and Russell becomes like a courtier or becomes a mentor to you know, Lyndon Johnson to take his ambitions and say, you're a little bit too vocal, your ambitions are a little too crazy, you're rubbing people the wrong way, and he finds a way to befriend Hubert Humphrey, and at least to who he becomes. So is that, is that kind of intertwined with that story, or no? Yes, it is. I mean, all my books are trying to make you, the reader, more outer-directed. So as I said, we're, we're increasingly self-absorbed. We're always thinking about ourselves. Do people like me? Did I say the right thing? Um, you know, am I being respected? And I want to flip the scenario. I want you to look and think about the other person, what they need, what they're thinking, their psychology, their background, their problems. And starting from that position, mm. you have the ability to influence them. And that may lead into some of this acting ability where you know how to present the, the proper front for them, etc. I know I get a lot of flack for this in my books, and I've had it since The 48 Laws of Power and The Art of Seduction. But I'm saying, to be a social animal and to be able to get along with people, you, of course, sometimes you need to be honest. I don't think you should be dishonest with your wife and your children. That's, those are personal situations. I'm talking out in the, the business world. I'm sure you, when you're addressing your thousands of employees at those, I've been to that in Vegas, you're playing a role. You're wearing a mask. You're showing them a kind of persona that's going to impress them. You're being a leader. Being a leader means being assertive, being strong, talking in a certain tone of voice, carrying yourself in a certain way. You're an actor. And the better you are in front of a crowd in doing that, the more people will think of you as a person of authority. Right? That's a different perspective of thinking about it. Now, do you think there's partly some people who struggle with that, or maybe they don't struggle with that, that we need to improve in that. Because in the book you talk about how one woman can meet a man, and a man can open up and say, let me tell you about the way I was raised, my relationship with my mother, and he starts crying. And one woman can say, wow, what an emotional guy. I love this guy. Sensitive. Sensitive. Man, his heart, I felt him. And another woman can say, what a pansy. You are so weak, right? Do you think the struggle is to try to get everybody to like us that becomes the issue where eventually we don't end up becoming who we really can become? Or are you actually saying that one has to learn 
how to wear a different mask to deal with the person that wants the sensitive side or this side because that can become a very complicated life because you become bipolar having to become so many different personalities. So I'm really curious to know if we can dig a little deeper on what you're saying here. Well, I'm saying... You know, you know what I'm asking, right? I think I do. But I'm saying you need to be aware of the person that you're dealing with. Now, some people are truly toxic and we've all encountered them in our life. They're, they're no good. They're gonna, they can ruin your life. They're aggressive, they're, they're selfish, whatever it is. Um, and, and my book is full of stories of those types. Now, when you're with them, you need to be able to, to suss them out. You need to be able to see the signs that this, you're dealing with a toxic person. So I'm telling you to be aware in the moment that every person you deal with in life is different as an individual. You, Patrick, have a background that's unique, right? You've explained some of that to me. The more I know about your unique background, about who, what makes you who you are, the better I'm able to deal with you. It doesn't mean I have to become a fake person with Patrick. It just means that when I know that you have these particular sensitivities and these particular values, I have to be aware of that and I have to not offend you, you know, or, or, or do things that are going to turn you against me. So it's not like you have to make everybody like you. But you have to understand every person that you deal with and what makes them tick and what makes them an individual. Sometimes you do have to alter yourself and, and how you talk to a person depending on who they are. And I'm not, you're not bipolar. This is where the argument gets, gets sidelined and is, and is not right. When you are in your daily life and you meet Jordan Peterson, for instance, you talk to him a certain way. And when you meet somebody else who maybe you don't respect as much, you suddenly become another person. I'm saying you're not aware of how deeply you are acting in your everyday I agree interactions. With that. I agree with that. You're always shifting your persona yeah. depending on who you meet. You'll notice in your own life, there'll be people you meet who make you kind of aggressive. You'll be very aggressive and assertive in them. And other people you meet who will make you very intimidated and you'll be the exact opposite. You change depending on the people that you're with. That's sort of natural, that's how we are. But you're not aware of that. You're not aware of how much you are actually. Are you saying to be in the equilibrium the most wins? Like regardless of who you're sitting with or still have to make some adjustments no matter who I'm sitting with? Yeah, that's why you brought up the Lyndon Johnson story. The yes. brilliance of Lyndon Johnson um, as a communicator was that he tailored his message to every different person that he met. Mm -hmm. He wasn't the same with Hubert Humphrey as he was to Dick Russell, as he was to John F. Kennedy. He was a master at always sort of shifting depending on, on the vulnerabilities and the values of the person he was dealing with. So you need to deal with people as individuals. People are complex. We like to simplify them. Some more than others. Some more than others, but yeah. everyone is more yes. complex than you think. Yes. And we like to simplify them. So when we're dealing with someone, we think, we, we have a snap judgment about them. They're like this or that. Yep. But they're more complicated than you think. And so the more you can figure out what makes them different, what makes them an individual, the better your chances of having the ability to influence them. Influence is an important part of this book. And some people might think that that's kind of something evil, that I'm, that I'm being very Machiavellian. But as I've made the point from the 48 Laws of Power, there's no worse feeling in life than the fact that you can have no influence over the people around you. That you can't influence your children or your spouse or your boss or your colleagues. We all want the ability to have 
to persuade people to have to be able to move them in some direction. So there's nothing evil about that, in my opinion. No, I'm I'm with you there. So by the way, uh, Lyndon Johnson seems to be a guy you like to write a lot about because you've written about him before. It's true. With how he went on a run and he ran for office and how. Uh, the day after he got elected, the next day he was hospitalized from exhaustion because he worked so hard. I think yeah. you talked about that in, in War. In 33 Strategies, War yeah. Chapter 4, I think. It's maybe Chapter 4 or 5. It's one of the first uh, few chapters that you said, you know, throw everything at one, at, at go. Death Ground Strategy. Death Ground Strategy, four. which is the sickest strategy. Out of all of them, that's my favorite strategy that you have. I agree with that strategy. But do you think sometimes a person being way too ambitious, because you know Lyndon knew from day one he wanted to be a president. Yeah. It wasn't like it was a unknown thing. Like everybody knew he wanted to be president. Do you think Russell sitting down with him and him finally being able to trust somebody to say, listen, I don't have a bigger motivation than you. I can't, I'm not trying to be a president. I can help you get to the next level. Do you think the moment he felt like Russell's coming from a standpoint of really wanting to give him some direction and help him out, he put his guards down and say, let me just speak to this guy and allow him to counsel me a little bit. You think him learning how to tame his ambitious in a way that a lot of other people would want to counsel him helped him eventually become a president? You know, um, some of the most aggressive, powerful people in history had a, a incredibly high levels of ambition and they had to learn to control that on their rise to the top. That's how people become successful is by their ability to channel their energy. So you have to be aware that the game is social, that the, the winners in life have a wider base of operation. They have more supporters, they have more allies than other people. You're not gonna get very far in life if you're alienating everyone around you, right? You have to ha learn self-control. I mean, all my books are about learning how to control yourself. You're asking me how you learn to control yourself? It's baby steps, it's little things. It's, I mean, I, I have all sorts of lessons in all of my books. Like, um, if you're angry about something, you don't act on your anger. You wait 24 hours, 48 hours before sending that email, before yelling at someone. These are little steps you take to learn to control that. Um, if you're highly ambitious, um, and you show too much of it. Sometimes it's good to show ambition, but you need to show a certain amount, not too much to frighten people. Well, that's what these books are about. They're being self-aware that in a certain situation, you enter an office, 30 people, and you suddenly show that you want to be like the number one person. You're going to find your path really difficult in life. But if you show that you don't have any ambition, no one will respect you. So you have to hit that proper mm. medium. Got it. And you, you learn how to do that. You learn by your mistakes. You learn by the people you've pissed off that you've alienated. And you learn self-control. Powerful. I was the, uh, on the board of directors of a publicly traded company run by an entrepreneur who was very successful, but who had no self-control. He couldn't control himself in an interview. He, when he was interviewed by a reporter, he would talk about his sex life. He, would, he had no... He had no um, ability to censor himself. And um, he got angry, when he got angry, he yelled at people. He made so many enemies that he ended up destroying himself. I was part of the group that got fired him as the CEO of the company, and then the company just completely tanked because of that. I see that all the time. We're looking at that with Elon Musk. You have a person like that who has no self-control, and it becomes a problem. And so what do you, what do you think about what Elon Musk is doing? Do you, are you saying, Elon Musk is somebody that has fully lost control or 
is Elon Musk, uh, a person who is going through uh, 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 logical people trying to tame his creativity and they're clashing together. Because these guys are looking at profits, this guy's thinking about changing the world. Yeah, but what happens is like your ego gets in the way. I've seen people like that. They think that nothing, they cannot be challenged. They think so highly of themselves that they can't stand anybody challenging them. So yeah, you, look, you've created a publicly traded company now. If you don't want people to challenge you, if you don't want the difficulties that come with a publicly traded company, then don't do it. It's very simple. If you don't want those kind of walls, those obstacles that people are going to put up, then don't do it. But he made that decision. And once you make that decision and you're a strategist, you're not just an entrepreneur, but you're a leader and a business person, you have to make compromises. You have to control what you tweet. The car business is an extremely difficult business. It depends on mass producing something at a reasonable price. And so you have to have a scale that you can, that you can manage. And he never really had that. He didn't build his company up in an organic, slow fashion. He was too ambitious. He went too quickly. I saw that with the man who I was, the, I was on the board of directors. He expanded too quickly, um, which gets back to your ambition thing. So you have to be careful and you have to be a strategist in life. And I think someone like Elon Musk lacks a degree of self-control. So who would you think would be a good strategist in the business world? Are your opinions the same with a guy like Jeff Bezos? Yes, he's extremely smart. Um, I read an article recently about the guy who took over, I believe it's Best Buy. He's really smart. He's doing an incredible job in, in, in an industry that's, that's dying. You know, a large store that's mm -hmm. selling technology. That's terrible business to be in. He's extremely wise in how he treats his employees and how he built his business slowly. Um, I think Reed Hastings is a great example. He's made some mistakes, but he's built, I think he's quite a, a smart strategist. So what do you think about Bezos? Do you think Bezos is a great strategist? Yeah, he's almost too great a strategist. What does that mean? Well, that means I'm not necessarily in favor of monopolies like that. I think there's some dangers to it. He understood that you can go five, ten years without making any money, without any profit. But as long as you expand the brand and you get people addicted to what you can give them, then he thought long term. He was a visionary. He thought in terms of 10, 15 years. And if I have any fault with business leaders is they don't have that ability to look past the quarterly report. He was willing to lose a lot of money knowing that he was building something extremely powerful. He's a great strategist. So what's the difference in your mind between an Elon Musk and a Jeff Bezos? Elon Musk is more of a visionary but he's not a practical person. He's not, uh, he's not an ABC type person. He's not able to, I think, build something that's sustainable. We'll see. But I think he got too, he was too much of in a hurry. Mm. And he believed too much in his own myth. And he thinks that anything he touches is gonna be brilliant and great. He doesn't know his own limits. Uh, Bezos would make mistakes and he would kind of learn from his mistakes. He's a, he's a humbler person in a way, although he probably has a pretty big ego by now. Elon Musk doesn't seem like somebody who's learning from his mistakes. I don't know, I could be wrong, but I think he's someone who's a little bit out of control. Why don't we lead into the toxic, uh, uh, different toxic yeah. types, uh, if you don't mind. I want to read this part here. This chapter is determine the strength of people's characters. So you talk about the toxic characters, and then you go into a strong character. I kind of want to highlight that as well. But, uh, 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 you know, prior to doing that, I want to read this part to you on what you say in the book. You say the weak character begins from the opposite side. They are easily overwhelmed by circumstances. 
making them hard to rely on. They are slippery and evasive. Worst of all, they cannot be taught because learning from others implies criticism. This means you will eventually hit a wall in dealing with them. They may appear to listen to your in instructions, but they will simply revert to what they think is best. You talk about the hyper-perfectionist. Then you talked about the relentless rebel, the personalizer, the drama magnet, the big talker, the sexualizer, the pampered prince, pleaser, savior, the easy moralizer. And I'm reading this, I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, a, a, I had a little bit of that at this phase of my life. Yeah, this was a little, too. yeah, I mean, I'm reading it, it's like, Apart, and like maybe this is a little bit of me. And so we sat there and I say, so what do you, which one do you think this is me? And we're going through it and applying. I send a text message of these eight pages to like 40 people. And I wanted them to read and said, what is your takeaway from this? And I saw some people's response. Some about people would you? say, no, I sent it to 40 people. And I just said, what do you think about these yeah. eight pages? And some people's response was, well, it makes me know how to deal with a few people in my life. Uh -huh. Right. And then some people's response was, I don't see any of it as me. Okay, 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 no problem. And then some people were like, wow, I can see some of my flaws. Yeah. And it was so interesting on how people read yeah. some of these pages. So toxic types. Why don't you talk a little bit about these different toxic types? There's no one more dangerous than, than a person who, who has no self-awareness, that can't see who they are, because that gives them license to do whatever they want and feel justified. Um, so I want you to become aware of perhaps you have these tendencies yourself. The ability to judge people's character, maybe one of the most important chapters in the book, but one of the most important skills you can develop in life. Because think about it, you are constantly in a situation in life in which you have to decide on whether you want to associate with this person or not. You want to hire them as an employee. You want to vote for them for president. You want to marry them. You want them to be your friend. We've all been in situations where we thought somebody was a certain way, and then a year later or a few months later, we discover a whole other side to their personality, and it's not good, and we're surprised, and we're disappointed, and we tend to blame them as if they were fooling us. People leave traces of who they are. You're just not picking up the signs. I say in this chapter, Nobody ever does anything once. If somebody has done a bad deed, or you see them mistreating somebody else, and then they'll come back and say, oh, it just came over me. This happened once. I'm not, that's not mm. who I am. You'll believe them. You should not ever believe them. You should realize that people have patterns. When they do something bad, they probably have done it before and will do it again. So these are t types of people who have certain patterns, and I want you to be able to pick them up. And you, we're making the distinction between strong and weak characters. A weak character can't stand any kind of criticism. They can't learn from situations. Their, their ego is too fragile. And a strong person can adapt and can take criticism. Let's say you sent that out to 40 employees and you, I thought what you said was you wanted them to assess you as a leader through the prism of those. No, I did that with the people I work with on a daily basis. Like I did that with Mari, I did that with my wife. I did that with people and I said, which one do you think is me? That's a sign of a strong character. Yeah. And that's a sign of someone who is a good leader. I have a quote in there uh, from Schopenhauer that fools do not show up wearing a cap and bells and evil, destructive people don't have horns on their head. They've learned to disguise themselves. So really toxic people have learned since an early age that if they just simply display 
their ugly behavior. They'll turn off people. And so they learn to be charming and they learn to be kind of seductive and they wear a mask that disguises you from the reality. Is it the fact that everybody, 100% of people fall under one of these toxic types? No. No, so there are people that don't fall under any of these toxic types. We all have a little bit of them. Well, that's what I'm saying. So I have a little bit of the hyper-perfectionist in there, for I sure. I can see that. <laughs> I can see that because I can see that because how many years have you and I been talking about writing this book? I mean, I remember one time you and I spoke and you're like, Pat, if I have one other person, your mother had just called you that day, and she said, how are you doing with the book? And you were upset. You said, if my mother calls me one more time asking me how the book is looking, I'm going to lose it. I don't want anybody asking me about the books. You were 300 books to write this book, over 300 books yeah. to write this book. I can see that. But what I want to know is the following. Okay, one, almost all of us have a part of the uh, 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 toxic types. The perfectionist, a relentless rebel, personalizer, drama magnum, big talker, sexualizer, pampered prince, pleaser, savior, easy moralizer, etc., etc., right? We yes, all have it. We do. Okay, is the key self-awareness and then have somebody give counsel to you? Or is it self, like, can you address it yourself? You, you know what I'm saying? Is it something that maybe I need to sit down and consult with anybody? Because how I view myself is obviously, you know, nine out of ten times different than how other people view me. Right. Would you agree with that? Definitely. So do you think we almost need somebody else who knows us very well to give us their feedback, feedback. with us willing to take it? Well, it's a question of both. It's a great question. It's good to get feedback. It's just sometimes you can't trust people's I feedback. I agree with that. Like people will be political with you, particularly you as a CEO of a great company. They may not be very honest. They may be afraid to be honest with you. Your wife may be less so, but even she has her limits. Even she knows that she doesn't want to, she needs to please you or stay on your good side. So you need to, to, to have the ability to do both. The, the greatest sign is when you've had an interaction with people and it didn't go the way you expected mm -hmm. it. The person was colder than, than you thought. Maybe they were offended. Are you going to go back home and, God, that guy's an asshole. Fuck him. What an idiot. Yeah. You don't or are you going like to go that, home though. and you're going to say, what did I do yeah. wrong? Was I being too dramatic? Yeah. Was I being too personal in the situation? Yeah. Was I moralizing too much? Can you go home and self-reflect and say, well, maybe I have some of these problems. That's the difference between you and the toxic type. The toxic type can't go through that process. Let's say that the quality in a person is almost like a, a metal. There's the word tensile. If you're a strong person, you can bend a little bit. That metal, if it, if it bends a little bit, is actually stronger. People who are weak can't take any kind of criticism, can't look at themselves. Now, their ego is very fragile. They're going to wilt under any kind of challenge. Okay, so let's go through the process on when you talk about the superior character, right? Because yeah. you talk about that, and it's incredible how you explain it. Say I'm somebody that have one of these toxic uh, uh, personalities, right? Masks that I wear due to upbringing, mother, like when you tell the story about how Howard Hughes was raised with a mother that almost was all over him and loved on him. He couldn't do anything wrong, and a dad wanted him to have a certain set of standards to continue the family legacy and then he didn't want to be dependent and I don't want to be and then they die and then boom he's left to do this and he's a technical guy but he's not really a businessman and a visionary and a leader you're explaining all that other stuff but see I'm somebody I read it and I said I got three of them and it concerns me 
and I want to change and I see a trend on the kind of people I attract or the kind of people I keep losing in my life, right? Like I remember one time I dated three girls in span of four years. They were all the same. Like, why am I attracting this problem in my life? And I said, one day I'm sitting, I'm like, oh, this girl, these girls nowadays. I'm like, dude, it's not these girls nowadays. It's you. Right. So then I came from this standpoint. Then I said, dude, I am not playing around. I got to figure out who the hell this guy is. Because right, right. I wouldn't let my own daughter marry a guy like me. That was my right. biggest challenge I had. <laughs> right. So I'm staying single for a while. I got to figure myself out. How does somebody who knows this to go to the superior character? So what processes do I need to go through? The, the main thing is, is knowing that you have that quality. See, like if you don't think that you have, the, let's say you are a hyper-perfectionist, and I have those tendencies, but you don't, you're not aware of it, you don't think that you have that problem, you're never going to be able to stop it, you're never going to be able to control it. So 90% of the game is your self-awareness. So when you get in a situation the next time where your tendencies, I, I make a point in the book that we have a lower and a higher self. Mm -hmm. The lower self is this kind of animal part of us that makes us act without thinking, that makes us fall into patterns, that makes us get emotional, that makes us take the path of least resistance. And we're constantly falling for that because it's easier. It's the animal part of our nature. If you're aware of this part of you, if you're aware that you have these tendencies, then you can begin to control them. But I don't want people to think that this is that you have to aim too high. You're not trying to become Gandhi or something. We have our flaws and we have our limitations. So you are aware that you have a pattern with certain women. Okay, three of them. I can bet you that there was probably a fourth woman that you were about to fall for. Or maybe this happened. Absolutely. Okay, and maybe you did. But then at that point you realize, oh, here I'm doing it again. Yes. All right, I got to step back. Yes. It takes time. Yeah. When you make a mistake, when you have a painful relationship, a painful, a bad interaction, you step back and you say, is this a pattern in my life? Now with that awareness, you can begin to yeah. break that pattern. You talked about uh, uh, creativity and, you know, uh, uh, having people give you some counsel and feedback. Two days ago, we were with Chip Wilson. I don't know if you know Chip Wilson. is founder of Lululemon. Oh, sure. He's worth $3.9 billion. And so, you know, we get along when we talk politically. We, we may go at it for a long time and have some incredible conversations together, but I always walk away saying, this is my friend. We have a relationship I together. I feel the same way, Patrick. 100%. I totally uh, respect you. And 100%. You're a great CEO and you're, Thank you're, you. you're a wise leader. I appreciate You're not that. a toxic type. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. So the part he said to me that was very interesting, and I walked away, he said, a true creative person is never happy. Yeah. Because whatever product he creates, he's never happy after, after he produces it. But he said the challenge sometimes is that nowadays that board of directors drive away creativity in the company. So as the company gets around mm -hmm. longer, Definitely. all they want to do is profit, so fire people, you know, raise costs and do this. It's almost like printing money to make the economy look good. But then, you know, you're going to have a hit a few years yeah. later. And so I asked them a question about how to get the creative person to deal with the logical people that are going to tell you trends. Look, we can't be doing this. Last time we did, we lost money, all this other stuff. How do you, having studied so many different people and having studied so many different things, where do you see the balance of a creative visionary, Elon Musk, knows he needs data. He knows he needs to look at trends. He knows he needs to sit down and talk to the logical people that they see numbers. And the logical people know they need Elon. They need a guy that's going to cast the vision of where to go next. How do you make those two personalities work? From the Elon Musk perspective, 
he has to be aware that he has limits, that he's not great at certain things, that he knows how to come up with a, a, a great idea for the Tesla car, but how to make, to, how to build it to a scale that it can become like a General Motors, he's in over his head. He's going to need help. He decided to go to become a publicly traded company so he could raise money on a different level than if he were private. So you need to realize that you're dependent on other people. All right? So if you're Elon Musk and you're just gone public, you're aware that you have your limits, you're aware that you can be a bit egocentric. All right, who am I going to bring onto the board? That's a key decision. Am I going to bring on a bunch of yes men who are just going to kowtow to everything I say? which I think he started off with a board like that? Or am I going to bring people on who are just numbers people who are going to make my life miserable, who are only about a quarterly report and for boosting the price on, on, on Wall Street? Or am I going to bring, bring in smart strategic people who are going to cover for my flaws? So a great leader realizes, and I talk a lot about this in the war book uh, for great generals, know that they have flaws and limitations and the people they hire are designed to cover those flaws. Um, so if I'm not great at execution, I'm going to hire people to serve on the board who are practical, who have, have a track record, but who are not meddlers. So it's a key element there is who you choose to be on your board. That's a tough thing. And he talked about that. Let me tell you. Yeah. It is such a tough, it's easier to say it than tougher to be in a situation because when you're hiring a board... I've been in the situation, so I know how tough it is because... You could hire someone who is like that and then they get on the board and they feel the pressure from being a publicly traded company and for getting in trouble with shareholders. Yeah. Who am I beholden to, the shareholders or to the CEO? And at some point you're legally responsible That's to the right. shareholders and you start changing who you were. So it's a difficult decision and a lot of it's based on the character of the people that you choose. But um, the main thing would be for the guy that I worked for and my board was like Elon Musk and he could not be aware of his own flaws and limitations. He thought he could do the whole thing. He built this company from one store to hundreds of stores around the world. Why should why does anybody know more than I do? You know, and I told him beginning from day 1, look, you have limitations. There are things that you're not good at. Let you me, told him that. Yeah. Let, How was his reaction when you had that you. conversation? He with just wouldn't listen. He loves me because of the 48 laws of power. He brought me onto the board uh, yeah. because So he of wanted that. more power. He didn't want to... He wanted a yes man. He wanted someone just to validate his ego. So the Elon Musk thing is who do you choose to be your lieutenants? It's not a science because as, once you get on the board, people change, you know? But you, you have to have a mix of people from different backgrounds and, and create... It's like choosing a basketball mm. team. You've got to have the right kind of I agree. mix. And then from the board point of view, you have to understand that this is the creative person. This is the person who's driving the company. You can't put straitjackets on them. You can't tell them to be someone that they're That's not. It's tough to do for them. It's extremely tough because you're feeling shareholder pressure. So in my case, the guy who was this visionary CEO, he was brilliant. He's a brilliant entrepreneur. He's knew, he knew how to design clothes. And the board was trying to constrain him and always like not giving him the money that he needed. He wanted to constantly borrow more money to expand, etc. They were putting all sorts of limitations on him that were making it so he couldn't use his strengths. 
So it's the fact that the, the board members and the CEO are aware of their own limitations. Now that's easier said than done. No I... doubt about it, because I'm in these meetings all the time. But I want to read this part to you, okay? So two things, and then let's go into envy, and I got some questions I want to ask you about persuasion, and possibly even uh, an event that happened in uh, Argentina two weeks ago when a guy uh, got up and gave his opinion about how millennials should change, and they don't understand this, and they don't understand that, and I'm like, this is, this is a completely different perspective he's coming from. Maybe what your opinions are about some generational, okay. how everybody has sure, certain... Sure. Okay. So you talk about here in the book, you obviously talk a lot about the narcissistic leader, but you say, if anyone dares to challenge the narcissist, they are more prone than others to go into deep narcissistic rage. They are hypersensitive. They also like to stir up constant drama as a means to justify their power. They are the only ones who can solve problems they create. Constant drama also give them more opportunities to be the center of attention. The workplace is never stable under their, under their direction. How does one who is going through this? Now, you and I talked about it earlier when we talked about presidents. And I said there's not a single president we've had that doesn't have a slight element of narcissism. Sure. You know, Trump has it. Obama every has CEO it. Every CEO has it. Every CEO has it, right? Yeah. And, and that could be a good thing, but learning how to control and come to the next level. How do you prevent this from happening, from constantly creating problems to solve if there are no, no problems. Okay, so I have a, a definition of narcissism that's a little different from other people's. Normally we think of a narcissist as someone who loves themselves. And I'm actually saying that a narcissist is a person who doesn't love themselves sufficiently. So in order to get through life, we have to have a degree of self-esteem. We have to think that we're worthy of certain things. We have to have a sense of inner worth. If we don't have that kind of bedrock from within, we constantly need attention and validation from other people, right? I need attention, I need to stir trouble, I need to feed my ego. I can't get it from myself, I have to get it from other mm, people. Mm -hmm. That's a classic, what I call a deep narcissist. And that's why they cause so many problems in life. And I measure it. I say, imagine it like a water line. And here at the top is someone who's not a narcissist. Here at the middle is kind of an average person. And as you sink deeper into narcissism, you're more and more self-absorbed. You can never get up to that mid-level point where you can start thinking about other people. At the high point, you're someone who's very empathetic. You're able to get inside the mind of other people. You understand their moods, their emotions. Most of us fall at that range of maybe 60%, 50 being the middle line. We have moments of narcissism where we get self-absorbed, particularly if we have problems and we, we, we turn inward, but then we have enough self-esteem because of our parents and because of our background that we raise ourselves back up and we don't keep continually sinking into that narcissism. We want to get higher, we want to get to that level where we're able to be more empathetic. A deep narcissist has sunk so far below that they can never get up to even to that halfway point. They're so self-absorbed, they're so insecure, they constantly must stir up trouble, they need to be the center of attention, if to be the center of attention means to create a great work of art, that's fine. But sometimes to be the center of attention means to mess with people, to create problems, to stir up trouble, and to be the, at the center of that. Once somebody is at that level, like a 20 or a 30, and these are just arbitrary numbers, sure. there's nothing that's going to raise them back up. That's who they are. There's nothing they can do. There's almost nothing other people can do. They are, um, they are uh, what's the word, they're damaged goods. A lot There's of, nothing that, that can happen. I here. don't think so. Wow. 
Um, That's, those are some strong words right there. Well, I have a story, actually, a story that got cut from the book. If you got my bonus material, if you pre-order The Laws of Human Nature, you get some bonus material. There's a story I cut that I give you about Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist, who was a deep narcissist who managed to kind of cure himself. And the way he cured himself was through work. Instead of absorbing himself in, in getting attention, he put all of his energy into the Manhattan Project and into later becoming a, a great physicist, um, sort of a public figure. He turned against uh, nuclear arms, etc. Um, he sort of cured himself. You can perhaps cure yourself through your work, through getting out of this, getting your attention through what you achieve rather than through what you stir up from other people. But generally, once you get past that, that, that low level, there's nothing you can do because you're addicted, to, you're addicted to getting attention from other people. When you're in the business world, you have to deal with so many different personalities. Yeah. And it first starts off on you realizing, hey, why am I attracting people like this? Well, maybe because they're like you, right? And they're you're attracting your own self. And then you change. Oh, wow, I'm attracting quality people. What's going on over here? Well, there's a reflection that that's taking place as well. And sometimes as I'm coaching, I'm sitting and going through these conversations, I think about some of the things I saw happening early on in my career. One of the things you wrote in this book, page 47, okay? You said moralizers. Because, you know, sometimes we talk about narcissism, bipolar, and people say, this person, they're like this, they're narcissistic, they're this. Moralizers who try to separate themselves out and denounce the narcissist in the world today are often the biggest narcissist of them all. That's right. They love the sound of their voice as they point fingers and preach. We are all on the spectrum of self-absorption, creating a self that we can love in healthy development. There should be no stigma attached to it, right? This whole idea of I'm above narcissism. No. I can't believe somebody would be somebody like this. No. I think they are some of the biggest narcissists they are, in the world. They are. In other words, if I write about aggression or I write about envy or I write about narcissism, every single human being that has ever lived is inside that circle. We all have that quality. And the worst type of people are those who say, oh no, it's not me. I'm not a narcissist, I'm not aggressive, I never feel envy. It's not possible. I explain why we are all narcissists, why we're all self-absorbed. It comes from the way that we are raised as children and how we need to feel validated for ourselves. Um, so the people who claim that they're not narcissistic are generally very dangerous. I've seen them manipulate and divide in ways that just makes no sense to me. And I think they're extremely powerful. Uh, when it comes down to persuasion. Sounds like you've they, had some personal experiences. Yes, many of them. Can you share one? So the campaign, let's just say if I'm dealing with you and you did something that um, you have to make a tough decision, okay? They'll go campaign their uh, sympathy, and not their sympathy, their unfairness, like that word. It's so unfair and I don't know how to handle this and I'm coming from this place and I'm trying to and I'm, you know, going to church oh. and I'm going through this and I'm really... And then people are like, oh my gosh, Patrick, you're being unfair and I can't believe you're doing this. Uh, and coming from that, and maybe you're not understanding on this. And I'll, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is an entire game being played. And then a year and a half later, everybody realized there was a game being played. And this isn't just one instance. This has happened multiple different times. Here's the crazy thing. These are good people. And typically the part that I see for moralizers leads me to the chapter that you're talking about here next. Passive I think, I think more passive aggressive, hardcore. But the moralizers to me are people that are driven by envy. 
That's the challenge for me with moralizers. Most people that come from a place of moralizers are now willing to be that guy, uh, Schopenheimer, or, 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 or the, the guy you're talking about who was a narcissist at the highest level and says, rather than me being at a level 20 that you explained, kind of like the book Power Versus Force. I don't know if you've read Power Versus Force. I think you would love that book. So rather than me, you know, trying to be this narcissist, I'm going to put all my energy into work and see what I can build. And then look what he did later on. He was against nuclear, all this other stuff. I think moralizers are now willing to put the work. That's the challenge. They want that same attention that some of these people get in their lives with the work, but they're frightened of putting the work in. So let's talk about signs of envy, okay? So again, I read this, and one of my favorite things you do in this book, it's like speaking to my father when I go up and I say, let me tell you what this person said, let me tell you what that person did, let me tell you what this person said, and my dad would come back and says, but you did this, but how about what you did? But you caused this. But what, and, so he, and then I'm like, how could you say that I'm your son? But you did this. Why are you only looking at it from your perspective? Right. Why are you thinking it's the other person? Right. Uh, there's a part of it that's on you as well. And that's a tough place Good to be. Father. Oh, he is. So when I read Signs of Envy, it takes me back on every element of myself when I was being extremely lazy and somebody was passing me up and I had some signs where I'm like, oh my gosh, all this other stuff, like when I was in high school or certain ages of my life. And I'm like, I realize how much of this can apply to everybody. So here's what you talk about, Signs of Envy. Poisonous praise, backbiting, the push-pull limit, right? And then you go envious types, the leveler, which is sick. I'm going to read the leveler. You say the leveler is the following. When you first meet them, levelers can seem rather entertaining and interesting. They tend to have a wicked sense of humor. They are good at putting down those who are powerful and deflating the pretensions, the pretentious. They also seem to have a keen nose for injustice and unfairness in the world. But where they differ from the, world, from the people who are genuine empathy for underdogs is that levelers cannot recognize or appreciate excellence in almost anyone, particularly those who are alive. They have delicate egos. Those who have achieved things in life make them feel insecure. They are highly sensitive to feelings and inferiority. They envy, uh, uh, initially feel... Just when you explained levelers to me, it was like unbelievable. What, what prompted you want to write about this? That's one. Second, how does one watching this who maybe secretly deals with envy, but they don't want to publicly talk about the fact they deal with it because it's one of the seven deadly sins, envy, right? How does one handle that? How does one deal with that? Handle one's own envy or from other people? No, no, no. Forget about other people. So first, let's address my own. Oh. I'm a moralizer, right? Yeah. I keep playing the card of, well, life is not all about this you know, my connection and it's this and I'm trying to be such a moralizer type of human being, right? And these people are too ambitious and these people are too much about wanting all the attention and I don't. I don't want a lot of attention. Well, most people who are like that, there's not, no advice I can give them. That's who they are. They're locked into that. There are certain people who I call envy or types who because of their childhood, they feel that they always deserve more. They're entitled to have more from people. They feel like they are privileged somehow. They're not willing to go out and do the work. They want other people to give, give, give more. Nothing's ever going to change them. It's best that you recognize them and stay away from such types. I saw you said they that, can yeah. be very destructive. In the end of that chapter, I have a key, I have a section on how to use your own envy. So the number first point is to recognize that you feel it, to not be in denial. This book is about how you tend to be in denial. Envy is one emotion that almost no one will ever admit to. 
because to admit to feeling envy is to admit that you feel inferior to another person. We don't like to do that. We want to feel superior. So no one will ever admit that they acted out of envy. You, Patrick, me, Robert, we have done things out of life out of envy. It's natural. It's human nature. Chimpanzees, they've done studies. Chimps and primates showed signs of envy. What does it come from? It comes from the fact that we're a social animal and we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. Does he have more than I do? Is he getting more respect than I'm getting? Is his car better than mine? Does he have more perks and privileges than I'm getting? How did he get into that university and I didn't? We're all doing it. Stop denying that it's happening. It's how the brain functions. Once you're aware that you actually feel envy and you're finally honest with yourself, then you can move beyond it. Instead of constantly feeling envy for someone who's powerful, turn that into something competitive. Instead of like being angry and deciding to sabotage them, why don't you work on becoming better than them? Using the fact that you feel inferior to this person should impel you to excel, to be, become better than so them. So you're saying let the feeling of envy make you competitive to want to outdo and outcompete yes. and outwork and out Because you're not going to get rid of envy. It's the silliest idea that you're going to somehow be Gandhi and you're not going to feel it. You're going to feel it, but turn it into something productive and positive for, mm. for you know, where you actually achieve something. Yeah. Instead of tearing people down and criticizing them and moralizing, build something and excel. Use it as a force to make you competitive. You always tend to compare yourself to people who are more powerful than you. Why don't you look down on the scale and look at people who are less powerful than you and compare yourself to them so that you can begin to appreciate what you have. You know, oh, he's got so much better parents than I do. I wish I had a mother mm. like that. Well, look at your friend who had the worst kind of mother and feel appreciative of what you have. It wasn't that bad. So look at the other side and compare yourself to people who have it much worse than you. And also, instead of feeling, um, there's a thing called schadenfreude, which is a form of envy, where if someone says that they've had a bad experience, it almost makes you feel happy inside. You get joy from other people's pain. If your friend doesn't get hired for a job, for a moment you feel almost kind of happy because... What did you say that's called? That's called Schadenfreude. Okay. It's German for joy in pain, feeling joy in other people's pain. It's a very big component of envy. You like to read about other people's failings in social media, what is the most popular subject? Some powerful person who has a foible who fell. Everyone loves it. They feed off it. It's a feeding frenzy. That's schadenfreude. Well, you want to have the opposite. You want to develop what we call midfreude, which is if somebody has good news, you actually feel joy for them. You don't feel pain, that you don't feel envious. You actually share their joy. You open up your spirit. These are not easy. They're not no natural. Way. Phil Helm, you talked about that. Phil Helm, you talked about how poker guy, player, poker player. Phil Helm, you talked about how a guy stole money from him, and he sat there and started thinking about positive thoughts about the guy, and eventually ended up being able to have a relationship with this guy because he conditioned himself to start liking this guy uh -huh. rather than having resentment. It was the hardest thing he had to overcome, and then once he overcame that, then he ended up becoming the biggest bracelet winner. He's got fifteen of them now. So that idea, what you're talking about, is easier said than done, extremely difficult But we But the right word, conditioning. You can yes. condition yourself to, to, and you can train yourself to feel differently. So, so now let's talk about the other side. So one is how to handle my own envy that I have for others. How about when there's other people that are envious 
of my game and what I'm doing. How do I handle that? Because well, especially in a competitive world when you come up, I mean, I'm sure a lot of authors are not happy about the fact that every time you put an ink on paper, you sell a New York Times bestseller. I'm sure a guy like you experienced that as well. I get, how, I get tons of envy. So how do you handle it coming in as a person that's growing and doing bigger things in your life from friends, family, peers, competitors? Well, first of all, um, you have to understand that, that, that that's what you're experiencing. You know, people will disguise their envy. They will criticize you. They will say, oh, Patrick, you, you cheated your way to the top or you did this out of the other. Your power, you got to where you are out of some unfair means or you don't really deserve your success. And you won't recognize that as envy. They may be more subtle with their criticisms. You'll think that they're just being critical of you. Um, that they're trying to be honest, but in fact they're feeling deep amount of envy. So the problem is recognizing when envy is occurring. Oftentimes you don't recognize that that's what's going on. You think that the people are just don't like you or are criticizing you, as opposed to the fact that they are envious of your success. So half the game is to recognize that people are feeling this emotion and to not get dragged down onto their level. The other thing is to recognize the types of people who are toxic enviers. So everybody feels envy. So if your assistant or somebody, a colleague, has a bitchy comment to you that hurts you and that you feel comes from envy, it's probably best to just let it go by, to do the Phil Helmuth strategy and to not take it personally and to recognize that envy is like poison ivy. It's out there. It exists. There's nothing you can do about it. Everybody feels it. Just accept it in some people. But then there are the toxic types who are going to ruin your life. They're going to become your partner or your friend in order to wound you. They feel envy and they want it. their strategy is they're going to become your assistant or your colleague or your business partner or your wife. That happens. And they're going to end up trying to sabotage you and ruin you. That's their strategy. So you have to recognize people who are prone to feeling a lot of envy. Um, and I give, uh, I give you a kind of a code for for. for give me a, give me a summary. Give me a bit of because sometimes you have a blind spot, right? Love it. Love creates blind spots, right? Flattery creates blind spot. You know, all of these things create well, blind spots. So how do you? What do you look for? Okay. Well, there's there's some there's on a very simple level. I have a chapter on nonverbal communication, very big on that because we humans communicate a lot through our body language, enviers will reveal themselves through what we call micro-expressions. And I have a strategy in there that this philosopher advised. If you tell somebody suddenly, you suspect that they're an envy, and you tell them of some good news that's happened to you, for a split second, you will notice a slight frown on their face, a slight sign of unpleasantness, like they swallowed a lemon. Then they'll disguise wow. it with a smile. I swear if you're aware of it, you'll see it. On the other hand, if you tell them, something bad happened, oh, I got that, I didn't get that job, or I lost, you know, the mortgage in my house. For a moment, you'll detect a slight smile, a slight look of pleasure. It only lasts for half a second. There's a guy named Paul Ekman who writes about emotions, and he's coined the expression micro-expressions, and he literally can show you um, photographs of what they look like. They're very fast and very, because people can't help but feel a little bit of excitement when you tell them bad news or feel a little bit of pain when you tell them something good about yourselves, but then they disguise it. So that's one way. Another way is that people are praising you 
and it's too effusive. It doesn't feel justified. It's like you've only known them for a week and they're saying, God, Patrick, you are the greatest person I've ever met. You're so wise. You're so... It's not natural to say for people to be like that. It's natural for us when we meet someone to be a little wary around them. But if someone is suddenly praising you and it doesn't seem justified to anything that you've done or said, they're probably disguising some envy. So if, if you know somebody who tells you gossip, gossipers are envy types. So they share with you some gossip about somebody else in the business. And it's okay, everybody gossips. But they do it a little too often or it's a little too strong, a little too salacious. They're probably at some point going to be gossiping about you. Mm. And so that's a sure sign that, that they feel envy toward the people that they're trying to criticize. This is why I say this. Guys, uh, you're watching. First of all, you've got to order this book and read this entire book cover to cover. I'm, I don't read his books. I study his books. I don't just read this guy's books. In the world of business, if you don't realize your number one product is people, you're going to be left behind. So go one more sign about the envy thing. When, when somebody's doing it to you, what, so the whole thing you're talking about when you ask a question and say, you won't believe what just happened in my life and we just had a big promotion to see that subtle uh, half a second or you, you know, my wife and I just had the worst argument ever. I think things are going in the wrong direction and that subtle thing to see, right? It, 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 it'll, it could be a micro expression or it could also be where they, they go with you on that. Now, I'm talking about you can actually test people's envy. You go, my wife and I just had the worst argument. She's such a bitch. And then they go and they try and subtly make you feel even worse about your wife. They're trying to sabotage you and destroy you. Natural reaction for me, if you said, I had this terrible fight with my wife, is I want to try and maybe help you repair right. it. Get over it. Deal with it. This envier is going to want to make you feel worse. And you're not going to recognize that that's what they're up to. They're going to go, God, your wife is such a bitch. You really should think about leaving her, you know, even though you have children or whatever. Or they're, they're going to find, oh, do you, she was like that in that argument. I saw her and she was like this and she's, she's worse than you think. So it's not just the micro expression. Fuel on fire. It's what they more. do yeah. afterwards. Or if you have some success, it's not just the micro expression. They'll find a way of devaluing it. So for instance, for me personally, I had friends who um, I suddenly had success with the 48 Laws of Power, and they'll go, boy, that book is sure making a lot of money. And the implication was, I mean, they said it differently, was I wrote the book to make money, you know, as a put down. But they're coining it as kind of half praise, right? Um, well, that's a sure sign, because really what they're saying is, you're just a soulless hack who wrote your book not because you believe in it, but because you want to make money. So those kind of comments that get under your skin, that make you think about yourself, and maybe I'm not so good, <laughs> is actually designed by the other. We live in a culture... Do you call it out? Do you call it out when it, that happens? Or do you just kind of put it, store it and say, got it, move on? 95% of the time I store it and move on. But sometimes I give them a comeback or I put it back on them. And I sort of turn the tables. Because I don't see you just taking it all the time. Well, sometimes you can't help it take it. It's like a friend or somebody you don't yeah. want to offend. And there's no point in getting. But I have my subtle digs, my way of getting back at them. You know, I don't take it all the time. So, you know, here's what I did. I had, I had a person that we, um, uh, a long time ago, I worked with. And every time we had some kind of good news, it would be like, Hey, look at the email we just got. This person wants to partner with us and do this. Yeah, it's probably fake email. 
Oh, look at this other person. They want to do this, this, this. Ah, they probably would never do anything like that sure with you. Sure sign of envy. Yeah, and then you know what I realized? I got together with a couple of my teammates and I said, listen, moving forward, no good news goes to this person. Yeah. No good news goes to this yeah, person. Yeah. Just keep it. We'll deal with it and we'll move on. Because yeah. every time we share it, there's negativity that yeah. comes back and we don't know where it's coming from. It kind of adds up. Last thing here. Uh, uh, you know, you and I, Robert, we can sit down. Two hours feels like five minutes and yeah. I don't even know time goes by, right? So yeah. a couple of weeks ago, I'm in Argentina. And I'm at this insurance conference and we're staying at this palace and it's a nice place, Buenos Aires. We're being spoiled and having a good time. And all these CEOs of insurance companies are over there. And on one of the sessions, they start asking about uh, working with millennials and how do you get insurance agents, uh, millennials to become insurance agents. So first of all, you have to realize life insurance is as boring as it gets. You know, for us, when we do what we do, it's not the most exciting industry. And it's been terrible because a lot of people don't know how to connect with the next generation. Sure, I can That's imagine. been the biggest challenge. The industry is an insane industry. More money is made in this industry and lives are changed because it's a great product. Today, insurance carriers are making products that a person can take advantage of while you're alive. So doctor tells you you got terminal illness or chronic illness. You had $600,000 life insurance policy. Now they're giving you the $600,000 to enjoy while you're alive before you die. Things have innovated but they don't know how to connect with the generations, right? right? So you study generations and you see what happens. Boomers, Gen X, millennials, all these other things. What are you seeing happening with a certain spirit that's with these generations that we ought to pay attention to, to you know, be able to know that next generation needs this so we can communicate with these guys? What do we do with that? People in a generation don't, are gonna think differently than you are thinking. It's a natural process. This goes back thousands of years. The oldest uh, recorded bit of history on some uh, tablets from Sumer, like 9,000 years ago, are these young people nowadays are so worthless. This is the worst generation. They're, not, they're going to make our country fall apart. In other words, the present generation always thinks the previous generation is screwed up, not as smart, not as together, soft, whatever. Mm -hmm. And they think that the older generation is also a problematic. Everyone thinks that their generation is superior. So you want to be aware of the fact that if you're dealing with millennials, they're not inferior, they're not superior, they're just of a different generation. It's like an animal that evolved in a different way. And so you want to be aware of what makes their life different and where their values come from. If you're a Gen Xer, you valued more than anything individualism. You grew up in that period where your parents were from the 60s generation and they tended to not be the best parents and they often left you alone. Now yours might have been different, but that was the culture that we lived in. So people in the Gen X generation, and this has been proven by studies, tended to be much value individualism and self-reliance. Millennials are not like that at all. They grew up in the period of 9-11 and the crash of 2008. They are very much more fearful about it. They don't necessarily believe that they control their own destiny. They think that there are a lot of forces out there that they can't control, particularly when it comes to like Wall Street and things like that. And so they're very wary and they're not so, so appealing to them as an individual, as a kind of a Gen Xer will fall on deaf ears. They're much more attuned to the social realm, to being around other people, to causes. Millennials are really big on causes. So you have to know their spirit and know that if you're going to try to appeal to them and sell life insurance, you're going to have to approach them from a totally different angle 
and you approach somebody who's a boomer or a Gen Xer, you have to adapt to their spirit and not feel superior to them. So I explain in the book how you kind of create a profile of that generation. There are also great books written about millennials so that you can get to understand them and get out of yourself and out of your way of thinking. They don't think the way that you and I think. I, when I grew up, the first thing I wanted to do was leave my parents' house when I was 18, get the hell out of the house and be on my own in college, have everything for myself. Millennials don't think that way. They like to stay at home. They're living in their house until they're 28, 30 years old. They're afraid of, sometimes they're afraid of independence. They don't want to own a car because it's going to bring them down. Mm. It's going to be, make them more mm -hmm. dependent. They're afraid of that. That's not a moral judgment. And I, if I were a millennial, I would probably be the same way. It's just different. They have other positive traits besides that they're more community oriented than a lot of people from my generation or Gen Xers. But you have to recognize what makes them different and not come at them from your moralizing perspective. It's so amazing you say that because Chip Wilson two days ago said the following. He said, I said, your ideal customer, you are so specific on who it is after researching this guy. It's a 32-year-old woman born on September 28th who owns a cat, <laughs> isn't married, takes care of her health, but is thinking about getting married, but she doesn't have to. That's his ideal customer. And the moment he, he understood that that's his that's his customer. Yeah. And the moment he identified that to understand how socially we're changing all these things and listening to everybody talking about yoga, health, all these things, he saw how things are changing and he capitalized on it. Yeah. I think it's important to to know generationally. One time Time magazine did an article, I think two and a half years ago, and it was titled The Narcissistic Generation. And he said, you know, the, the millennials are this, his dad is this, six pages are saying all this other stuff. But then at the end it says, if you are saying that this generation is lazy, they don't appreciate this, they don't appreciate they don't appreciate this. All you're saying is that you're getting older. Yeah. Because at one point you were like them. Yeah. And I thought it was a great ending to an article with Time Magazine. Yeah. So uh, again, Robert, you and I can talk for hours and uh, I think everybody ought to read this book. And if you haven't watched the first sit down Robert and I did that had to do with 40 Laws of Power and 33 Strategies of War, I highly recommend you to go watch that interview as well because it'll go a different direction that we went with his prior books that he's read. I think you don't need to just order one book. I think whoever that's a true value tainer, go order those five books, every single one of them. Mastery, 33 Strategies, 40 Laws, Art of Seduction, and this one, 50th Law is a book I know you'll like a lot, but I'm talking entrepreneurs. Those five, I recommend you order every single one of them slowly but surely start reading them. Having said that, Brother, thank you so Thanks much for your time. Patrick, Truly. Man. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.